Yo, this is Rob Harvilla from 60 Saws That Explain the 90s, the world's greatest loopy and perverse and inaccurately named music nostalgia podcast. We're doing 90 songs now because there's too many songs. Pearl Jam, Jay-Z, Jewel, U2, Cher, Hootie. These are just some of the names people yell at me on the internet because we're back. More great songs, more rad special guests, more loopy perversity. Join us once more on 60 Songs That Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, touching a button that says AZ5, it's Andy Greenwald! Comrades. Put on the Iger counter! Wait, Iger? I think you mean the Chernobyl music? Yeah. Oh, that was the same thing? Yeah. So the, wait, so the chairman of Disney. Yeah. So the joke is, yeah. it's supposed to be the Geiger counter. Yes. But I call it the Iger counter. But Geiger counters are for earthquakes. You know what They're I mean, not dis- decimeters. Well, now I know. I've watched Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Like, obviously, <laughs> I had no idea. Um, Andy, it's great to see you. We're in the studio again. Kaya uh, is recording us from Parts Unknown in California today. Well, uh, the thing is, we're recording from Reactor 4. Yeah. And she's safely in Moscow. So, um, as, as you may have guessed, as we've teased, Andy and I are going to be talking extensively about uh, a three-and-a-half-year-old piece of television today, the Chernobyl miniseries from the Home Box Office Network that we both we missed out on the first time around, and then we turned into a bit of having not watched it. Then we turned into a bit of all the... Re- podcasting we had done about it that nobody had ever heard. Now we actually watched it. Now we're actually going to talk about it since Craig Mazin, who did Chernobyl, is also doing The Last of Us. People love this. People love this bit. I just feel like this is a really good way to celebrate our 11th year of podcasting. I think so. I think <laughs> Just digging in the crates. But I think it's a, it's a really... I've learned a lot from doing this, and I can't wait to talk about this show with you. You've Let's learned see. a lot by doing... by watching the show? Yeah. I've learned a lot from, like going back and like oh, yeah. interrogating mm. both my prejudices and also like thinking about like my failures. Yeah. Uh so it's going it's going to be <laughs> I think failure is a key theme of of Chernobyl. I think that what we're doing is the figurative uh equivalent of 400 nude miners descending beneath radioactive soil yeah. to dig an unnecessary hole. That's right. And Bill's going to give us 400 rubles when we're done. Wait, really? And take care of our families? <laughs> um, but first, we wanted to talk about a couple of uh, news and notes things. So Succession, season four trailer dropped today. Uh, it was also announced that Succession is returning on March 26th, which makes, makes an amazingly packed March. I don't know if you're ready for this. I'm not, but tell me why. The Last of Us will be coming to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Top Chef oh, will I, be coming back. I have some thoughts about that. Top Chef, which is London, Paris entirely or all of Europe? I guess it's a little unclear. It's called Top Chef International. Okay. Um, they based in London, 
they based the season. They based themselves in London. I swear to God, if this the finale is at a Mexican resort, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. <laughs> I assume it'll be elsewhere in Europe. And what they announced, I mean, we knew this. Like Gail had, when Gail came on the podcast, she told us this. And then maybe maybe we had to cut that part out because she broke the embargo. I don't remember. But the international well, part had been announced. and everybody has been Instagramming from, yes. from London. Yeah. But what I hadn't understood although we could have predicted it, predicted it, and I'm thrilled about it, is that it, it is essentially an all-star season where they have culled contestants from all of the international versions of Top Chef. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah, so, um, like, wonderful Top Chef U.S. contestants and winners, like Buddha, went straight from winning Top Chef to being back on Top Chef. He is on the season competing again. No shit. Yes. Dawn is competing this season. Right? Yeah. Sarah from Kentucky competing this season. But then, like, the winners or runners-ups or finalists from Top Chef North Africa, from Top Chef Spain, Canada, France, like, all the different iterations, they're all competing. You are so hyped. We just I got completely so derailed from talking about succession. About Do you think yeah. that they are going to accurately reflect British food culture? I, I'll tell you what I think they're going to accurately reflect. And you could see this in... These, even in the, like the promotional stills in the eyes of the hosts. That remember, like they went to Texas where no one in Texas was doing COVID anymore. Yeah. And they were all wearing masks <laughs> in Whole Foods. Their eyes are like, we're in England. And if there's one thing you and I learned in the last year is that England <laughs> got makes, some other issues. Yeah. England makes Texas look like Berkeley. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of like their <laughs> adherence to COVID mandates. So they are psyched. Yeah. Um, psyched. So, Top Chef's coming back, I think, March 9th. The yeah. Mandalorian comes back in yeah. March. Yellow Jackets comes back in March. Uh, and now Succession at the end of March, March 26th. Uh, a two-minute trailer. Mm-hmm. I would say about as illuminating as a Next Week on Mad Men ad back in the day when Mad that's Men fair. used to be like, next time on Mad Men. Well, wait, that's my hat. <laughs> next time on Mad Men. <laughs> wait, I'm going to push back on that. I don't agree. I don't agree. Do you mean in terms of like what it told you about the plot? Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying like at this point, Succession prints its own money. So I need a little bit. You know what I mean? I just need, as Pete Postleway said in the town, I gave her a little taste, you know? And that's all I need. (laughs) Bill's giving you 450 rubles now. I gave her a little taste. That's... Incredible. Um, I just need a little taste, and I got it. There's there's an Israel-Palestine joke just right on the edge. Right on the edge. Uh, and the end of this trailer, there's a couple of, of good Kendall moments, but I don't need to know who's merging with who. Yeah, I, I mean, let's remember the genius of Succession. And this trailer is genius, and this trailer is, like, it, it just, we're back. Just yeah. full, full flavor. Full fat yogurt, yeah. let's say. The brilliance of succession is that I don't really care who's merging with who, or even ultimately who's succeeding who. It's just, let's get back and let's get lost in the sauce. Yeah. Let's get this gang back together and have all sorts of nonsense shenanigans on boats and in boardrooms. And now the deck's shuffled. So I feel like it did tell us that, right? That, sure, like, yeah. The, the succession Roy is kids, back on March 26th. No, but that the Roy kids are going to try to do their own thing, but they still can't do it without yeah, dad. But and succession Tom has is become a, a little bit famous for like the faint. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you get to the end of certain episodes and you're like, oh my God, like Shiv and Kendall like had this like incredible moment of like like interpersonal understanding with one another. It's going to change their relationship. And like two episodes later, they're like, fuck you, no, fuck you. I, I think what's weird, well, not weird, but I think what's going to be surprising about the season, if I can make a prediction, is that Kendall survives the season, but Reed Richards is introduced in episode three and it's John Krasinski. 
So I know you've been, I know your deep dives yeah. have been coming up a little empty recently, unlike Comrade Glukov in uh, episode three there of Chernobyl. There was somebody who was but... being touted as the next Reed Richards, and I can't remember who it is. Driver. We talked about oh, this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I don't agree. I think it should be, I think I would go Krasinski over Driver. A million percent. You think Feige fired up white noise? It was just like, that's my guy. Get I mean, me. he is a scientist. In the, well, no, he's not a scientist. He's a Hitler study professor. Hitler so it's clearly a one-to-one. Um, I don't know. It's just, we don't have a lot of shows that just, they don't, it's not like, it's not like, oh, it's backfiring on all cylinders. It's just one yeah, cylinder. I've, and it's I, the best I, cylinder. I, I think it's, woe is the man who tries to zag on succession. Yes. You know, I've tried it. Did you? I think I tried to be like, they should, I, I think, with with all due respect to our listeners, who I think at this point, succession is part of like the cost of entry to this podcast. So I'm assuming you guys all know right. that in the last season, it seemed like for about 10 minutes, Kendall Roy might be dead. That's what I was referring to. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, that's the bravest, most beautiful thing a show's ever done. You wept. I didn't, but I was like, I think I wept intellectually, like where I was just like, these take these takes are crying. CR intellectual weeper. <laughs> and yeah. uh and they didn't. They no. brought him back. And that's fine. And I'm I love Jeremy Strong, so I'm excited to see more Kendall Roy. Brian Cox keeps doing interviews where he's like, I think we're gonna end the show soon. And if that is the case, I do wonder death is not the only outcome. Right. Uh, for us, it is, but for for these characters, it's not. I would love to see like some kind of like you can't come back from this moment, right? Some real like this was the stakes and these are the consequences right. kind of thing. But honestly, I'm not really bothered. About well, because well, there's no, I mean, at least you know, because they haven't done it yet means that when they do it, it's going to feel even more significant right. and surprising. But I certainly went into this trailer thinking this and came out of the trailer thinking it. I would imagine the Roy kids get back together with their dad this season. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't feel like the Civil War is from here to the end of series. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. I don't know how many of them end up on which side. Right. I, but to your your other point, you know, I don't know if this is ready to be a meme yet, but the like, tell me you're running five seasons without telling me you're only going to run five seasons. Like, that has been the consistent communication. Sure. Which would mean that this season is the, dare I say. Penultimate. Say it again. Pen ultimate. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is which is exciting. But like I, my only other takeaway is Matthew McFadden and Brian Cox just on an island. That's a good movie. And they may actually be on an island. Right. Uh, because it's succession. An island owned by Adrian Brody. Not the <laughs> character he plays. Um, you didn't get a chance to see Poker Face, did you? I haven't watched it yet. Okay. So I just wanted to mention, first of all, like embargoes or whatever. I think it's great. I... I think it gets better and better through the season. Um, I've seen a few episodes and the first four went up. Yeah. And I was just going to ask, mm-hmm. Peacock losing a billion dollars aside. Hey, hey, hey. Under a billion dollars. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to have room to grow. Uh, is that smart for a mystery of the week to put up four episodes? Yes. Yes. I mean, there's, first of all, Peacock, did, yes. <laughs> yes. Like, there's no... Is it smart to show Poker Face during the Women's World <laughs> Figure Skating Championships? My, like, there's nothing that Peacock can... If we're talking about it, then yes, it was worth doing. Okay. That is good for them. The other thing is, it this show is not in any way analogous to The Boys, but we have constantly praised the fact that Amazon 
has figured out what feels like the right system for that show, which is we'll give you three and then you got to wait. You know what that's called? What's that? They gave us a little taste. <laughs> it's called the full pasta wait. <laughs> Do you know the scene I'm talking about? I Vaguely. Have you seen The Town? Yes. Okay, so in The Town. For me, it is just a watchable, though. It was not a rewatch. Ben Affleck goes into the, uh, Pete Possilway is a florist slash gangster. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he goes that, yeah. into the flower shop and Pete Possilway is there and he's got a cool glove on that you need to use to like, um, when you're skinning roses. I don't know, what are you, what are you, you doing? You need a gardening glove? Yeah. You're making it sound like he's fucking No, but it's Wolverine. like almost closer to like an archery glove. Oh, yeah, or like, like falconry? Yeah, and he's doing yeah. this rose up and Ben Affleck's like, here's your money, I'm not going to work for you. And he's like, oh, you're going to work for me, laddie. And then they have this whole conversation and it turns out that Pete Possilway, to keep his dad, at, keep Ben Affleck's dad in line, made his mom addicted to drugs. Wow. And he's like, I gave her a little taste. And it's just been banging around my head. So, what are we talking about? Peacock. This is incredible. I do think that this is now, that's what it's called. When a yeah. streaming service gives you more than one episode, but then restricts access. Yes, it's the possible way. It's called the full possible way. Yeah. Um, that's just canon now. Uh, th- it's not the same as The Boys for many reasons, One of, but the primary one for the point of my statement is that it is not serialized in that way intentionally. But, my, but I think that Peacock needs to explain what this is. They need to make as many of them as available as possible because there's a world where you watch the first episode of Poker Face yeah. and you could imagine with a modern TV brain that this that the show is serialized in a different way, that she is on the run specifically from these people, that this was just the premise pilot and the rest of it is them chasing her. And that's not what the show is. Right. So I think it's, look, I, I think it's great. I think, you know, we at this podcast, we are supported by and we support Kaya. And Peacock is her favorite streaming that's service. True. And we want it to succeed. I can't get the image out of my head mm. of you at the, like, Griffith Park Zoo mm. going up to a peacock and being like, you need to tell your story. You need to get it out there. Let me. <laughs> By the way, it's not just the zoo. Have you spent much time like in the Pasadena, Altadena area? Yeah, I heard area? that there's like peacocks are just like on the streets now. You could like leave like Descanso Gardens. You see like three peacocks and they're just like, like one on like, your gang gang. One go. on your car. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, it's a, <laughs> then you find out that like Jeff Shell from NBCU lives there and that's why he thought this was a good idea. <laughs> Everybody knows. What's a commonplace sight on your television screen and in your life? Peacocks. Do you think you will voraciously take down four episodes? Or do you think you'll be like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to parcel this out? Uh, I think that... I ask both on yes. a practical level, but also out of curiosity with your, as an audience member. I can probably think of the last thing I wanted to watch four consecutive episodes of in quick succession. Chernobyl. Yeah. That's, <laughs> is it like Chernobyl, Chris? Yeah, it's exactly like Chernobyl. But we're going to talk about, on Monday, we're going to talk about Last of Us 3 and, and Poker, Poker Face, Face, at least Some. the first two. Yeah. Let's talk about the Oscar nominations because okay. um, that's why people listen to this podcast. Yeah. Uh, at, we, we're here in Studio 7 at Spotify in Los Angeles and starting in just a few minutes is going to be an episode of a podcast called The Big Picture. Oh, is that new? And they did a great podcast very early in the morning on Tuesday about the Oscar nominations. And I thought, like, give you everything you need to know. And then on top of that, mm-hmm. on Tuesday night, Bill had Wesley on, Wesley mm-hmm. Morris, our buddy, on his podcast. And they talked about the Oscar nominations. And Wesley said something that really what I thought was um, kind of like, really, really, I thought was very thought-provoking, which was just casually saying, I think that the Oscars are important. I'm paraphrasing Wesley, but he was like, the Oscars are important because it tells the story of the year in movies by the people who make movies. Mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about it that way necessarily. I think that there's a lot of 
disagreement about why the Oscars are significant or why they maybe continue to matter or don't matter or what have you. Why do you think the Oscars are important? It's a heavy question. Yeah. Because I, I immediately my brain bifurcates into the two tracks of how or why are they important artistically and how and why are they important commercially mm-hmm. and, what they, and what they represent or the business that they could provide. I think that Wesley is right in the sense that it is like an annual shareholders meeting of the movie industry of like, here's what we're making, here's who we are, and here's how here's how we see ourselves and what right. we value. And that in and of itself is a constant negotiation sure. with the larger marketplace. But the ways that that develops are fascinating, especially with this year's nominees. I I was trying to like, I think for myself, I think I have a little bit of an issue where I can't decide whether or not the Oscars should be about the best movie or about popularizing the movies, you know? That are yes. I, I'm having a little bit of like a an issue, I think, because of the Top Gun Maverick thing, and how if you had asked me six months ago, obviously before all the Oscar contending movies came out, what Top Gun Maverick not only represented but its achievement in and of itself, and like the feelings that it gave the audience, I think that went beyond just like it was a good popcorn movie. But mm-hmm. we're like, that's actually like why I go in a perfect world. This is why I go to the movies is to feel this. Mm-hmm. To, you know, have a relationship with movie stars, to go through, like, this gamut of emotions, to be thrilled, to see something, and to experience something I've never seen before. And I guess you could make the same argument for The Way of Water. I, I, haven't, I haven't had that pleasure yet. But um, as the months went on, I feel like the, the idea of what Top Gun's achievement has been sort of minimized to some extent in the, in the Oscar race by the artistic brilliance of tar or banshees or what have you and now it seems like it's basically a two-horse race it seems like best picture is essentially down to banshees of inisherin and everything everywhere all at once so i guess i'd ask you Mm -hmm. does top gun and avatar's presence lift all boats and kind of make the show a little bit more popular this year there's there's a few things that are nominated that have been seen by quite a few people and that that will then maybe throw more of a spotlight on Tar or more of a spotlight on Banshees or whatever. Or are they making like the same mistake as this 10 movie best picture pool right. now kind of like, well, people are going to think that they're coming to see Top Gun or Avatar I, celebrated and they're going to wind up like seeing Tar I, jokes being made. I think that that's a really important distinction to make because there is the risk that doesn't really get talked about of a feeling of rope-a-dope, right? Like, does anyone actually, I know we all want, like I want movies, contrary to my popular, mm-hmm. contrary to my public position, I want movies to be successful. Yeah. But does anyone think that Top Gun Maverick being nominated for Best Picture is going to A, inc- significantly or meaningfully increase the ratings, especially when people will tune in to watch it lose? Like it's not going to win, right? And it's, and, and it's not really touching the party that's going to be happening. Right. I, I would imagine when lesser seen movies dominate across the board. So I'm not sure if that argument really holds water or the way of water, not to be confused with Oscar winner, the shape of water. But I think um, I'm thrilled that it was nominated, not because I want more people to watch the Oscars or movies to be more successful generally, but because I think circling back to Wesley's point, it is interesting to see the narrative of what movies are each year. And it's not always visible in mm-hmm. the moment. When you look back on past years, you're like, oh, I can kind of get a sense of what people, not only what they were watching, but what 
the industry thought it was doing and what and where it was as a as an industry. And Top Gun Maverick is brilliant filmmaking. I mean, it's just absolutely successful in what it set out to do and what it set out to be. And in our conversation about it, it wasn't just that like, oh, this is the greatest popcorn movie of the year. It was like the way that this movie has surgically zeroed in on what was good about action movies from the 80s, but made it in a 2020s box Mm -hmm. and used certain technologies and also chose not to use other technologies. Like that is a very, very contemporary thing. And one of the reasons I'm thinking about this is because, you know, you know, Chris, I'm Mr. Saturday night on uh, Wednesdays. And uh, I, had a, I had a free night. This is relevant to this conversation. I know. I took, took myself, you know, treat yourself, right? So I took myself out on a little solo, solo mandate to the Lemling Glendale, bought a just one please ticket to the Oscar nominated film Living, starring Bill Nye, uh-huh. whom I love. Do you think you would have seen that if it hadn't been nominated for an Oscar? Well, yes, because I love Bill Nye, and I and I was interested that it was like a in, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, the great novelist, wrote the screenplay, and yes. it's like a remake of a Kurosawa film. It's like, oh, this just seems, come on, yeah, I got to be me. Um, what was curious was I I had a lot of confidence that I could just waltz into the theater and buy a ticket like as it was starting. Movies are back, and I think it was because of the Oscar nominations. It was pretty well attended, yeah, which was nice. But his performance is amazing. I'm thrilled that he got nominated. There are a lot of things to recommend this movie, but it is also deeply strange because it's not just that the movie is set in 1955. It is as if the filmmaker set out to make a movie from 1955, including the way the credits play mm-hmm. and the way it says the end at the end. And you're like, is this a bit or is this an homage? Right. Like, what, what is this? And I think of this to say, not only did I think, I don't think that choice worked, even though the movie is worthwhile, that the movies nominated this year are 2022 movies oh, yeah. through and through. And that in and of itself is worthy of celebration and interrogation and an examination because this is what we're working with. That it's not living, which is like, it's, it, it's, it's a cover. Literally, it's a cover of another movie, but also it's a cover of another movie-making style that felt so inert and detached. And whatever argument you could make about these 10 nominees, and I haven't seen all of them yet, but I would like to see more of them, my guess is that these do speak to something. Sure relevant or cultural now. So you have uh, Best Picture, you still have to knock out the whale, right? Didn't get nominated. Oh, didn't? I'm, this is this is a win for me. So what, what was, what, Best Picture is? Top Gun Maverick. Saw it. Uh, it's, it's antithesis, women talking. Yeah. Like, like literally, <laughs> those two movies, and then there's everything all at once in everything, between them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, everything, everything everywhere all at once. The Banshees of Inishirin, Triangle of Sadness. Surprise, love not to movie. Amanda Dobbins, but yeah. surprise nominee. I love that movie. And Amanda called that. She did. Yeah. She called a shot. Yeah. Um, kind of like Brock Purdy looking down a, the barrel of a of a Of Hassan Reddick. Yeah. Is Amanda Dobbins? Who is Amanda in that? Yeah. Um, the Fablemans, All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water, Elvis, and Tar. I've seen all, most of these. I haven't seen uh, Women Talking. I just want to commend the Netflix Corporation for making a Best Picture nominated film that I had never heard about until last week. Oh, All Quiet? Directed by Edward Berger, who yeah. is a brilliant director. Let me tell you a movie that you will not want to watch. Yeah. That one. But I love that. He did. He worked on Deutschland 83. The he homies did Patrick, get ground Patrick up Melrose. in that movie. We're about to do a Chernobyl pod. I know. I'm just telling you. Just as, just as a heads up. I bet it's better than The Fablemans. <sighs> That is a really loaded statement. Interesting. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Okay, yeah. I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> yeah, you are. Cool. Half of me is allowed to say that. <laughs> you fucking hated the Fablements. Yeah. Yeah. Make the content, dude. Come on. What are you doing? The TikTok camera's not on. Tell me about it. Well, I mean, I loved the last five minutes. Okay. I thought the last five minutes were absolutely incredible and representative of what I think the movie, maybe the movie that they wanted to make. Okay. But otherwise... You think Steve just let this one get away from him? I mean, it is... Look, who in America... Did, he didn't have a personal relationship to the story? <laughs> brother, who in America can't get behind the, the pull-yourself-up-from-your-bootstrap story of a young man who dreams of becoming a filmmaker and uh, then becomes one with uh, no obstacles whatsoever? <laughs> exactly. It was insane to me, this movie. Where he's just like, I'm interested in doing something. I guess there's some sad things. I'm doing the thing. It's just... It is... It's like when it's when famous people write their autobiographies uh -huh. and can't see the parts of themselves that are more interesting than others and think that because it resulted in a win, then this was all moving content. And I and and the tonal shifts in the midst of it, the Judd Hirsch scene is awful. Like he's great, but that is an I just thought that was awful. And broadly, I thought Michelle Williams was like one of those classic like Pacino or De Niro in a movie where no one's telling him to just. Just ratchet it down a little bit. My favorite kind of I know. Of moments. Yeah, I, I haven't seen Fable Mints. I'm gonna. I'm going to before the Oscars. Then it becomes. A, oh, so I just spoiled it for you. I. It, it's one he of those becomes movies, a filmmaker, Chris. Yeah. No, I think Sammy Fableman <laughs> makes it. I. It becomes a high school romp midway through. Okay. I just thought it was really bizarre where it seemed like Steve was making an art house movie and Tony Kushner was writing a play, and then they made this movie. I, I just thought it was, I just thought it was a misfire. I would like to hear what you thought of Banshee, of not Banshee. Of, I would definitely love to hear you yeah. talk about Banshees. I really want to know what you think of Triangle of Sadness. I don't love on-screen barfing. Oh, uh, there's a lot of that. I know. Spoiler alert. Like that's less appealing to me than watching dudes get ground TF up <laughs> in trench warfare, I think. Yeah. I think. Well, uh, but, All Quiet on the Western Front, very available on Netflix for you. But broadly, I thought what was interesting about this, these nominees is, you know, I, I also listened to the Big Picture podcast. I just searched for it because, you know, it's, I, I'd never heard of it before. Well, you don't subscribe to it. You only subscribe to Fresh Air, WTF, and Bill. And Philly Special. And Philly Special. Um, I've listened to so many hours of that show this week. They put up a new podcast every day this it's week. It's in the fucking NFC Championship. I know. Um, uh, uh, this Sean was like, Sean was very pleased with the nominating nominated class. Mm -hmm. And I think that he, I thought that was a really interesting point that this does kind of get its arms around what the movie business is in a way that recent nominee yeah, groups haven't. It, that, I, thought I thought that, thought that was a really interesting observation. Was like, it was like a very uh, equitable distribution of different kinds of movies, including like the, I thought it did a really good job of validating why you have a 10 film best picture race. Now, I don't pretend to understand exactly how the voting works. I know that there's preferential balloting. Amanda, who was right about Triangle of Sadness, mm -hmm. has been very strong on Tar will be everyone's second bet favorite mm. and that that could make it a dark horse to get in the everything, everywhere, all at once Banshee sweepstakes. I think Banshees is going to win, but I, I could be wrong. You know, I'm, not, I'm in no way an, an Oscar expert, but that was... Tar was my second favorite. I mean, Top Gun, Tar, Banshees, right. uh, and then some deplorable horror movies were my favorite films of last year. I was excited to see that um, twenty percent of the actors nominated for Best Actor have been on this podcast. And is that true? I mean, that's two. But <laughs> who are they? Uh, our good friend Colin Farrell mm -hmm. has been on three times. I think on the watch. Well, one he's been on the watch. Well, that's true. He was on my <laughs> show. 
the Andy Greenwald podcast. I'm Where so was sorry. Colin Farrell on the watch. Oh, he was. Uh, you were on with him with Bill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When so he, he's been on. He vaped the whole time. That's cool. He's been on with me. I guess. That's, yeah. That's different. What was that um, for? That was for. Oof. I don't even remember. I mean, do, does he need a reason to come on the podcast? I, uh, I was curious about the Hollywood Perspectives archives. Yeah. You know, because they are somewhat lost to time because they were an ESPN project and we didn't take them with us. But I uh, mentioned to you the other mm. day, I was like, oh, like, look, somebody found like three or four episodes. And you were like, I wonder if they found the Andy Greenwald show. First of all, it was the podcast. No, I didn't. First of all, I didn't. What I was asking for was the Tony Bourdain, Bourdain interview, episode. which yes. was on Hollywood Perspective Perspectives, which I wish I had. Yeah. Um, that that's all. I think it's out there in the ether. You yeah. know, I'm sure someone has heard it. Nerd, like they gotta have it out there somewhere. That one, the first Lindsay Buckingham, like the ones where you get to talk to your favorite people, Colin Farrell. Although I think that was for this website, so I bet it still exists. Okay, I'm pretty sure it does. What would he have been in? I, was it a Yorgos thing? I, I remember Foster? watching something very rainy. I don't remember. And how is it like you're doing Colin Farrell and I'm not? It was he was in New York. Oh. And it was early days. Back in the day when you used to just... I used to go into Earwolf yeah. midtown briefly, like at the start of The Ringer, before it was The Ringer. Um, but Paul Mescal, big fan. He's nominated. Yeah. That was nice. Yeah, I, I, I think the only other point that I want... I mean, everyone's been talking about this, but I think it's interesting to say... Like, there's always debate, and this is obviously... Sean and Amanda are always all over this in terms of like... What are the Oscars actually saying to America? Is this real life? Are these the things people want to see? Do they care about these things? What is the obligation of something like the Oscars in terms of the mass audience? Um, and then it nominates Andrea Riseborough, mm-hmm. whom I think is amazing. I mean, she was in Zero Zero Zero. She sure was. Matilda the Musical. <laughs> She's always good. And I remember reading when this sort of groundswell of support started like 10 days ago for her role in To Leslie, um, that one of the things that may be hurting her is that she's a chameleon. She's always different right. and can do just about anything. Um, so like, for instance, she can sit between two dead guys yeah. and give a cartel leader some crypto. Yes. As she does in 000. I mean, who among us? Yeah. But then this, so broadly, like Andrea Riseborough getting nominated is great because I think she's a great actor. Mm-hmm. I think that's awesome. Uh, I'm also happy for my favorite podcaster, Mark Marin. you know, <laughs> who was the co-star of that film. Um, what if Bill was but, the co-star of Two Leslie? Do you think it would have been as good a movie? Haven't seen it. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I'm interested. You had my interest. Now you have my attention. But my point is that, like, it just seemed like there was five days of tweets, and she got an Oscar nomination. Uh-huh. And I think about how we correctly, I believe, say Twitter is not real life, but Twitter is the Film Academy. Uh-huh. I don't know if there's a good or bad thing, but that was really fascinating. I, I I can't begin to explain it. I do think Amanda made the point on Big Pick that this will probably be the first and last time this happens. Do you well, know what I mean? Because like the next time somebody's trying to do an organic viral like I had to break protocol yeah. and just talk about my great friend this person. <laughs> I don't think that it's going to have the same resonance as it did this time. I also think that um, this isn't exactly the dawn of the Justice League or like the Flash breaks the time barrier as the most memorable moment. You know what I mean? Like this wasn't, this wasn't just like a, 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 a bot invasion. Like yeah. she's a really good actor and apparently gives an incredible performance. Um, I think that all longtime listeners of this podcast and even occasional visitors to Daddington Island will know where the real, real juice is mm-hmm. in this year's Oscar nominees. And that's where my pick for actually best movie, movie of the year, Marcel Lachelle with shoes on is up against 
Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, which was a very contentious. What, what category are they up against each other? Cinematography. No, they're not. Animated. Oh. <laughs> animated. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Costume design. The shell's shoes are very, very intricate. I, you had way more Oscar takes than I thought you were That's going a real to. battle for the soul of America right there, is Puss all I'm in saying. Boots versus Marcel the Shell? Yes. I did see Marcel the Shell. You it was did? quite moving, yeah. Did we talk about that? Uh, no, I don't think so. So you saw my favorite movie. And- I didn't actually, honestly, you, you throw praise around. Like, you'll be like, that is not something that people say about me. But you'll be like, if you see a movie yeah. and you like it, you're like, that's the greatest movie I've ever seen. Accurate. Yeah. I have so seen nine I, movies. You, you said that about Tar. You said that about Top Gun. I didn't say that and was the greatest movie I've ever Marcel seen. Marcel no. Shell was your okay. favorite film of the year. It wasn't. Yeah. Tar was. <laughs> okay. Tar was. But uh, Marcel is really good. Marcel's and I was really good. happy it was nominated. Do you want me to do my top three movies of the three movies I saw this year? You did already. I know. Should we just get into talking about Chernobyl? I don't think we can put it off any longer. <laughs> we can try. I mean, it's been four years. Just as like, a, I don't want to belabor the fact that we didn't talk about this. So we're going to be talking about Chernobyl now. Spoilers for Chernobyl. Um, we, in 2019, I believe is when this show came on. It was in May of 2019. And... I was trying to think back, like, what were we doing? Do you know what I mean? And so I went back to the archives. I was in Albuquerque. You were in Albuquerque, but even through all that, I just thought I would mention that these were the podcasts that we did in May. Oh, Jesus. Breaking down Avengers Endgame. Oh. Breaking down Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 4. A Barry Veep and David Cross episode. Uh, David Cross. I think I must have talked to David Cross. Right. The penultimate episode of Game of Thrones. Well, that seemed important. A larger conversation about the end of Game of Thrones, and I guess I podcasted about the finale of Survivor that year. The finale of Game of Thrones, Barry and Fleabag, Deadwood the movie, and Black Mirror season five. Now, I don't know how many of those you were on because you were also making your own show at that time. I think we all know that I was not there for the Survivor and uh, Deadwood conversations. (laughs) Did you ever see the Deadwood movie? No. Okay. So we were busy, and then what happened was, I think... To Craig Mazin, the creator of Chernobyl and the writer of Chernobyl, and now the uh, co-creator and writer of Last of Us. And the writer of Hangover Part 2 and 3. Let's be real. And some scary movie sequels. Mm-hmm. I think that he was one of the first people to do a podcast project he did with Peter Siegel from NPR, mm-hmm. where he was like, I'm going to kind of document this show in real time on this podcast. And honestly, kind of took all my bits. I was just kind of like, I don't really, I don't really know what we would do. He's doing such a good job. Mal and Sean did a pod about Chernobyl uh, a little bit, I think into its run. That was great. But I just never, I I know that I started the first episode a few times and then it just kind of got lost to time and then obviously came a bit. So anyway, we can just kind of draw a line under, I don't want to apologize for like 40 minutes about, about the show, but that was, I, I did want to say, I think that's why it kind of slipped through the cracks a little bit. Yeah, I think, and and as I said at the time, like I was, I was busy. I was in production, and it was too heavy. I just didn't right. want to make the investment or the journey. And I have some words for that version of myself mm-hmm. because this isn't that. I mean, it is horrific, and it is haunting, and it is deeply disturbing. But it is, it executes at such a high level that my takeaway from an episode was never, "I can't believe what's been done to me." My takeaway was. Oh my God. I mean, it is a full sensory experience at a very high artistic level and is worth 
it's worth it. Yeah. It's simply worth it. And I and I do wish, I think you I think we're gonna get into this. I do wish I I didn't have FOMO at the time. It became a bit for us. But I do think seeing it in 2019 would have positively informed some of our conversations of things subsequent That's to what it. I was gonna say. Because is that Chernobyl I don't think Chernobyl was flawless. But had I seen Chernobyl, I think it would have impacted the way mm-hmm. I watched specifically Andor. Not in any way a ding of Andor or any way like Andor's not as good as I thought it was. Andor's still my favorite show of last year. And in a lot of ways, it's certainly easier to watch Andor because it's taking place in a fictional galaxy than it is to just be like, this was, you know, this is Russia just a few decades ago. And obviously, Tony Gilroy has the freedom, uh, for the most part, to explore a lot of different ideas and also have characters do things and have it be like, well, I've just decided that this is what this character does here. Whereas in Chernobyl, I think Craig Mazin was at once restrained by history and real events, but also if he chose to deviate from that, was lightly dinged for that. And I I was actually pretty surprised. Chernobyl has such a great reputation Mm -hmm. since its airing that I went back and I was like, oh, Mike Hale at the New York Times had a pretty critical review of it. Uh, Masha Gessen at the New Yorker obviously took issue with a couple of elements of it. So it wasn't a uniformly praised show, I don't think. I I, I do think like Masha Gessen's piece, and she's not a um, TV critic per se. I mean, no. she's just a brilliant thinker and essayist and cultural thinker. She wishes. Political thinker. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if only. Yeah. Her piece was written, I think, in res- at the conclusion of the series in response to the the critical hosannas mm-hmm. in a way to throw some... I know th- throwing some water on it is a fraught phrase yes. when you're talking about Chernobyl and nuclear reactors in general. Just sticking a rod in there. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Um, yes, I think to your Andor point, it's funny. It's like when you when you see something in a vacuum, and you, I think, correctly praise it, it's always interesting to then see what unquestionably is an influence. Mm -hmm. Now, to your point, Tony can do anything. He's one of our heroes, and um, it's an imagined universe set within an already imagined universe. But it's not just the the borrowing or the hiring of Luke Hull, who is a god-tier production designer who (laughs) broke through with Chernobyl onto Andor. It's also the the deep, deep usage of the deepest bench imaginable of brilliant actors from the UK. Yes. And just on a, on a, on another note, the idea that you can take a snapshot of a large structural systemic, uh, governmental organization or power in decline. Yeah. And make that compelling television through details, through brilliantly chosen, surgically investigated details. So Mm. there is a one-to-one in that, but I would even take it further and say like, We've spent a lot of time either unpacking or avoiding the glut of what we termed Wikipedia shows, mm-hmm. ripped from the headlines. Um, a lot of them true crimes. A lot of them true crime are based on podcasts. You know, no one is going to say. Um, I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's very fruitful to say like we crashed and Chernobyl are the same and one is better than the other. That that is not a useful critical designation. But it would be sick if we waited this long and then we're just like, that was the summation. Like, let's just, because we didn't talk about that one either, really. It's really more that the power of the medium to enlighten and and entertain using historical precedent, Chernobyl is a masterclass in that. Mm -hmm. And and, and 
showed me things, not just factual things that I didn't know, but showed me things about TV as a storytelling medium that I had not previously known or expected. And I'm not expecting the producers of the whatever tech genius was actually a fraudster or scammer to have that kind of rigor or be given the amount of time or frankly to be as passionate or as uh, research laden as Craig Mazin was. I mean, mm-hmm. these are, that is an apples to oranges thing. But it did leave me feeling like, oh, look what TV can do. Oh, yeah. So that, that, that actually segues to, I think, what I think is its primary achievement, which is it crystallized or clarified for me this thing that I think I've been trying to articulate to myself, and in no way is this an original thought, but that the goal of a film story should not be like this replication of reality, but the manufacturing of a reality, right? So even if it's a reality, even if the show is based on real events, the show is only responsible to the story itself. Viewers can take or leave the literal truthfulness of a show or a story, but they can only deal with the reality that the show presents. And in that sense, like Chernobyl might be unrivaled when it comes to creating the quote Chernobyl quote reality, not the literal Chernobyl reality, but the reality of the show is so deeply realized. I don't know if it has that many rivals. So that that was the thing that it really kind of crystallized for me, that the best television, whether mm-hmm. it's Andor or Mayor of Easttown or whatever shows I've been responding to recently, is that they create a tonal consistency that makes sense for the show itself, for the story it's telling. Absolutely. I mean, I think that you could make it even a broader point. I think that the best art isn't a window, it's a mirror. Mm-hmm. And if you are looking towards filmed entertainment to teach you the facts respectfully, you might be doing it wrong. I think that there's a commonality between successful adaptations, whether they're adapting books or something from another medium or historical events, where the best of them, you feel the personal, aesthetic, intellectual, creative, emotional touch of the adapter who brought something of themselves or what interested them to it. I mean, that's what elevates it. That's what transforms it. So that's why I deeply respected Masha Gessen's now four-year-old piece in The New Yorker. Who knows how Masha Gessen would feel about that now? But at the same time, some of the points made, like, yes, the Chernobyl series got the details right to a staggering degree for a Western show, almost to the point where the sunlight looked as if it was taken yes. from the, and the sunlight show was in shot 80s in, in Belarus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but then, but the creation of Emily Watson's character as a composite and the slow turn towards the series as a little guy and gal stand up Mm -hmm. to the regime is a Hollywoodization, is a Westernization, is a fiction, is a fantasy. And thus it did, it disrespected the truth. And I don't know if I agree with that because I think that this was both historically devastating and bracing and illuminating and caused me to want to read more and learn more. But also this was a television show made by an American in 2019 at a time when truth and lies and systems of government and their role in people's lives was changing in a different way for this country mm-hmm. and the way people, the conversations we were having about that. And I think that there, I mean, Gessen calls out this point of like um, uh, certain characters speaking back to apparatchiks or speaking back, speaking truth to right. the power in a way that no one ever would. And it's like, I, I respect that and I appreciate that. But the large majority of Western audiences won't know that distinction and might need some reminding of who ran the Soviet Union and what those people valued and why they were promoted. So I think that it's doing a lot of things at once. 
But I think what's remarkable, and I'm sure Craig Mason has spoken about this at length in various podcasts and things from Dateline four years ago, was the decision making Mm -hmm. of this is where my fealty to the truth ends and this is where the art begins. And you can feel that pendulum move at times during the series. And it's, to my mind, it's almost entirely successful. Yeah. I I think that the reality of the show stays consistent, even if the literal truthfulness of the show varies, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and that... That was one of those things that was really interesting as I went along. So I, I'll just say it was funny watching the first one because it was like the fifth time I'd seen it. The first one largely is a disaster movie. It consists of this, the, the immediate impact of this meltdown and some of the mistakes that were made, but in a kind of chopped up way that will get further illuminated at the end of the series. Um, it basically starts starts in media res, like where this amazing character played by Paul Ritter, the character's name is Dyatlov, and he walks into this room and like well, the show starts. Well, it know? starts with Jared Harris. Sure. It starts yeah. with the the end. Right. Uh, and then yes, it starts. I mean, we could just I mean, this is the thing about it. You're like historically, we might be a little older than some of our audience, I'm not sure. The degree to which I didn't know anything other than the top line yeah. was humbling. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And I think, you know, one thing that I learned from Masha Gessen's piece is that largely the truth wasn't known by anyone yeah. for the last 20 years. Well, they tried to keep so, it a secret. At least yes. according to the show, they tried to keep it a secret for as long as they possibly could. So we we knew, I mean, we're, you and I are nine years old, and I guess it, it's on the cover of Time magazine that there's a nuclear problem. But we don't know what that means. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know anything about the lived experience of it. And so then you turn on a show about it, and my mind being, I guess, more conservative than I even imagined. It's like, oh, I guess we're going to do a, you know, almost like a like a broad church, like the murder is coming, you know, TikTok of like this day when everything's fine and then bad things are going to happen. It's absolutely not that. No. You are suddenly in a room you've never been in before with people you've never seen dressed in a certain way, with these, these white, almost lab coats of nuclear technicians. And it's not just that the catastrophe has happened. It's that no one in that room, the people in the room and the, lar- the large majority of the audience, right? We don't know, right? We don't understand and we can't understand and we continue to not be able to understand because it's invisible. It's, it's, it's a genius opening. Yeah, and you get to see Jared Harris in the beginning of the series, but that the first episode is largely a disaster story or a disaster, you can say disaster movie that jumps around from POVs mm-hmm. to jumps around from, okay, so am I now with Jesse Buckley? Is she the star of the show? Or is she going to be the protagonist and all this stuff? Like, obviously, I knew going back into it that Stellan Skarsgård and Jared Harris and Emily Watson were going to be the three primary performers. But it's it's a really disorienting, thrilling, imaginative way into the story to have it be this true ensemble piece that does not feature the centerpieces of the ensemble. Yeah, because it will it will continue like the disaster itself. It will continue to spread in like concentric waves as it touches people. Yes, literally and otherwise. Now that being said, I think the first episode's wonderful. I think the second and third episodes are among the two best episodes of television I've ever seen. Can I detour for one second? I agree with you. Um, it, it's we could talk. We could fold this into our larger conversation on this on the Monday shows going forward. But I found it really striking and jarring to see an actual disaster end of the world show mm-hmm. about our world. It was horrifying. And it was horrifying and effective in a way that, and I, this is a show I like that has just started, but in a way that Last of Us isn't. They're not doing the same thing. You know, so I don't, I'm not trying to put, puff one up at the expense of the other. But I am saying that we have seen a lot of 
dystopian shit. Mm-hmm. And I know that you, not me, have seen a lot of horror movies oh, yeah. and things. Yeah. I can't imagine any of them are more effective than this, both because of its historical truth, but also just the, the nature of it and the fact that it correctly, not just correctly represents and depicts, but is laser focused on what humans are actually like in catastrophe, which is human and devoted to their own pre-existing ideologies and hopes and plans and really, really hard to deviate. It's really hard to deviate them from that, right? It Both the physical horror and the mental and emotional anguish of it really fucked me up. It's a challenge. I think it's really interesting that you bring this up because for as different as it is from The Last of Us, I do see some similarities mm-hmm. in Mason's ability to create tension and, it, frankly, adventure out of horror. And I, I, I think that's a good and point. I think in The Last of Us, what it is, is like we were talking about on Monday is the mechanics of video games and like whether or not this sort of side quest and test climbing over this to get to the... It's, that's all very video gamey kind mm-hmm. of problem solving. But maybe that's just storytelling. One of the things that really strikes me about the second and third episodes of Chernobyl is the way it's... Second one is basically a men on a mission show where it's assembling the, the team that's going to figure this out and how are we going to drop boron and sand and then Emily Watson is like don't do that and you know they have all these kind of like um it's essentially like a towering inferno movie there and then the third one is this amazing split between an investigative show because you've got Emily Watson visiting patients trying to get to these people before they pass away and as you you mentioned the coal miners um, which turns into kind of like this, I mean, it's practically Apollo 13, right? But it's all of these people, for the most part, and interesting, it never really happens with with uh, with the Emily Watson character, who is, is a, I guess, a fictional creation. She's a composite, yeah. The thing that hangs over everything is just the certainty of death, right? Like the idea that they are essentially throwing away or have had taken from them the rest of their lives. And what they choose to do with the rest of their lives will impact thousands, if not and, millions, of more people. And I think what, what Mazin has been praised for, and I feel trepidatious even to like wade, wade into this because I'm not an expert and other people have said, other people with experience, whether they are Russians themselves or Russian Americans or experts on the field have talked about this. But the way that the show skillfully articulates an element of the Russian character and it was interesting to consider it, the, the pieces that you're talking about, in, in reflection to Americans, which is like, we, I think there's an American story that we, you know, roll up our sleeves and do what's needed for the common good. But that's actually not the American story. The American story is broadly like, I'm here to have my own little fiefdom, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm going to patrol my own patch and, and whatever. This is the Dutton Ranch, brother. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so this, when the miners are like, we are introduced to them brilliantly and they're telling that joke about the rush, how you build a Soviet, you know, machine. And they're asked to basically just stop doing what they've been doing their whole lives, move somewhere else and risk their lives and their futures for something that might not work and that they don't understand. And that incredible tension between understanding you are a, I guess, I don't want. I don't. I don't want to put judgment into it, but you are essentially an insignificant cog in a much larger structure. But that there is some nobility in that, or there is some duty in that. There is some. There is something communist, right, yeah. on yeah. A, a, lo, a lowercase c about that was really powerful. 
and it was really profound and then increasingly disturbing. Because I'm not sure where we, we're going to talk about it, I think we just got to say Luke Hall's name again. Luke Hall's name because... The, I was going to... I mean... I, I just said it three times like it was an, a Russian oil giant. Luke Hall, the production designer. Yeah. Um, Luke Oil. I think that's what I said. I just want to say thanks to our new sponsor, <laughs> Luke Oil. You guys have been doing amazing stuff. And you know what? I don't... You know, Europe has to ask nicely Let's, they, they want that gas. I'm just... I'm, you guys know I'm pro-privatization of just about anything. Every room that these characters are in was considered every detail, every, and this is not cheap, you yeah. know, and it's not cheap financially and it's not cheap like in terms of like intellectual and creative labor. And whether it's absolute accuracy, like the trash pail, apparently, that uh, Jared Harris has in his opening scene that he takes out before he stashes his secret recordings or the, the rotary phones that are in the hotels in Pripyat yeah. or the giant um, painting, the Ivan the Terrible and his son, that is looming inside the Kremlin that we see the characters sitting in front of before they're called into the Politburo meeting with Gorbachev. Yeah. That's not actually there, but is, you know, it's in the, the National Gallery or whatever the equivalent is in Moscow. But it's artistic license in the best possible way because it's a painting of a Russian leader who is so consumed with emotion he accidentally killed his own son. And, oh, yeah. And it's looming, you know, and it's like, yeah, this is... What if I was like, I can't get past that. I can't get past the <laughs> I, Ivan the Terrible I think there are really sticklers who feel that way. Yeah, I'm sure. I think that the... So the, the second and third episodes I just want to talk about briefly yeah. because... Um, and, you know, the, there's that moment in the second episode where I think was the... Obviously, in the first episode, it's so terrible. But, like, the real, the bottom of your stomach falls out is when Harris and Skarsgård are having this sort mm -hmm. of, like, what are we going to do? What are we going to mm -hmm. do? And Skarsgård's still kind of like, this is not only fixable, but, like, I'm still thinking about saving my own skin mm -hmm. and coming well, out. Politically and yeah. literally. And Legasov's just like, we're going to die. Like, probably within five years. Yeah. You know, so, like, get that through your head. And that kind of freeing Sherbina up to be a better person or to be a more thoughtful person and how the lack of self-preservation and ambition winds up being the like kind of like the their fatal they their fatal fate is now like the reverse of the fatal flaw like they, it becomes their saving grace that they don't have to think about where am I going to be in 11 years what's my what is what is my like bank account going to look like? It's also the plot of the Oscar-nominated film *Living*. Just if you're really into that, I just thought you should know. Um, so you spoiled *Fableman's* and *Living* today. <laughs> this is one of my best podcasts you want me ever. To tell you how *Banshees* I, ends. Um, I so this is relevant to your point, but also as a side note, one thing I forgot about myself is that I am have at times in my life been obsessed and freaked out by radiation poisoning, and this as a actual Why? thing. So Three Mile Island thing? No, when we were, we've talked about this in different contexts, but one of the hallmarks of our shared childhood, not together, but not too far apart, was that we ha both had cable and mm -hmm. there were just movies that played on cable. And, you know, if you were homesick, you'd maybe watch Prices Right in the morning and then, but like around 2 p.m. China Syndrome? The cable, <laughs> no, but, they, but like at 2 p.m., the cable channels were like, yeah, <laughs> and they would just start playing whatever. Yeah. And one movie that played a lot, a lot, uh, was a movie called Fat Man and Little Boy. Yeah with Paul Newman and John Cusack. Actually, an amazing cast, including TAR director Todd Field. Um, and it is a lightly fictionalized... It's, it's like a prequel. No, it's, it's Oppenheimer. It's Dwight Schultz from the A-Team plays Oppenheimer. And it's basically about, the, what do you call it, the project, um, the Manhattan, Manhattan Project. project. Yeah. 
where they built the, the bomb. And some of it is fictionalized and some of it is, but, but essentially in the movie, I won't spoil this one too, but one of the main characters based on a real scientist and also the inspiration for um, the Dr. Manhattan character in Watchmen, in order to stop a accident from going awry, puts his hand into essentially a, a nuclear bomb and is fine for a couple hours. Yeah. And then the movie shows this decay. And there was something about it that gave me more nightmares and more like just obsessive thoughts than anything else because it was invisible, right? Like you couldn't, you don't see the wound. Right. But your body is disintegrating because of this and that we've somehow tapped into it. And that movie did a great job doing it. But this is like the masterpiece of that. Sure. You know, the thing that even I can appreciate from horror movies is the sense that when you sit down in the theater or you see the, the, the state of the run of play, you know that death or whatever is looming. Yes. And it's that, 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 Especially if you're sexually promiscuous. It, well, yeah. <laughs> or you go down, the, if you left something in the basement. Yes. That's the feeling, right? That's the kind of, your, your, the stakes are the highest they could be. You're, you're jittery, you're pitted in your stomach. That's what this entire show is because all of these people are dead. They're already dead. Yeah. And they don't know it yet. And it's, I think... You could point to the the horrific end of Vasily or other characters that they show to the degree that they show in the show. And honestly, Chernobyl is pretty, um, I don't know, demure isn't the word, but it's tasteful in terms of body melting. Yeah. But that horror feeling that's through it. I mean, this is, this is yeah, this is Apex Mountain for a certain kind of horror that, that exists in the world. And that's the thing that I can't really square. You know, like Michael Myers isn't really coming back, but well... <laughs> Well, <laughs> I just got on the phone with my friends from Rough House Pictures. <laughs> I was, uh, as you were talking, I thought for a second you were going to be like, I, I'm scared of radiation because Dr. Manhattan looked so lonely sitting on the moon. Meaning like he's going to come back or because I'm scared of being alone? <laughs> yeah, scared of being so lonely. Oh, oh, right. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> Existentially, intellectually. Yeah, we're all Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> no, I just feel like there was something that was... I can say it, 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 it all circles back to the scene you're talking about. Yeah. Which is the truest horror that I've experienced in like a movie or TV show is a character turning to the other and saying, We're, you're dead. Yes. Right. You're actually already dead. Right. And, and, it, and the natural impulse is for any of us to be like, no, we're not. I'm fine. I can do this. I can wear this mask. I can, you know, leave now. I could wrap this around my, my extremities. Yeah. There's, no. some, there's some lead I can put into my pants. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, well, no, some more lead yeah. I can put into my pants. And... <laughs> No, you can't. Um, where should we go next with this? So, uh, yeah. And then so, I find that the fourth and fifth episodes, th- this is, I, I didn't mean to get off on a side of mm. sidetrack about the Masha Gessen piece in the New Yorker or the Mike Hale piece in the New York Times or sort of the, some of the criticisms, but I felt like I noticed a temperature change, so to speak, with myself in the fifth episode specifically. Um, not that the fifth episode was in any way overly convenient, or anything and certainly is like as a piece of writing wonderful and the courtroom scene Writing's with all the, really the red and blue cards and the the idea of the balance that I mean I think I came out of the end of this show with an idea of the principles of what was at play in a way better way than I did when Shabina asked Lagasov to explain a nuclear reactor to him in a helicopter yeah. you know like that idea of this everything is basically setting itself off and all of these guys were responsible for conducting this dance, this really delicate dance between these these elements, and that because of cost cutting, you know, uh, in these in these 
uh, Russian Russian nuclear plants, they essentially were like throwing poison darts at themselves with these with with the, the with the rods. I, I thought that was just brilliant. I did feel like there was something about the much more process oriented mm-hmm. second and third episodes that felt truer than the fifth one. Well, I so but I, I also noticed you're skipping over the dog murdering episode. Yeah, well, we can get with to your that, boy yeah. Barry. Very, how do you say it? Coogan? Keegan? Uh, I thought it was Keown. Ke- Keown. Yeah. Should we just call him Barry? Barry. <laughs> you know, Barry has a has a newborn son named Brando. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. So you know a lot about him. I googled him. Well, but not I, Google pronunciation. No, that's what I googled. But there was a lot about his son. <laughs> the internet sucks. I love. You get on there the to internet. try and find one thing. One thing, and I'm like, oh, he married a dentist. Yeah, it's interesting. He did. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, again, I think that there are. This comes up in a lot of in our conversations about a lot of different shows, but like ultimately, this is an entertainment, and it it has an arc. Yeah, and it and and once you lay an a narrative arc over something, it is false. It adds it 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 it's no longer a true thing. So, for example, you know, in cursory research, I learned how to pronounce the name Jared Harris. <laughs> but in addition to that, I did learn. I mean, there are things like Legasov um, had a family. Yeah. He was married. He had a daughter. That's not in the show for reasons that it would complicate the He's image a of him. Huge Niners fan. <laughs> so well, um, there, there were, there were, he, there were more than one Legasov. You know, mm. there were more people brought in. There was just more, and that's yeah. unwieldy, and that's not dramatic. So I, I appreciate that, and I appreciate also that in order to not tie a bow on the whole thing, but there was needed to be a courtroom scene, and there needed to be a dramatic. Um, accusation or truth-telling because ultimately the show is its fealty isn't to the historical record of Legasov. Its fealty is towards what it wants to say artistically about a corrupt, uh, insular, failing state and what the cost of truth or not truth is. And so did Legasov really stand in front of this show trial and say what he said and then fear he was about to be shot and the KGB... I don't know. And was Dyatlov but, really walking around that control room being like, I don't care about any it, of the warnings, hit that button, motherfucker. It, it, it's fun going to like the Wikipedia page where it's just like, yes, he was an abrasive asshole, but he also loved poetry. Yeah. And theater. <laughs> it's like, well. Uh, but also the 49ers, so unfortunately. Um, no, but so, so the, but, but the goal of all of that is to get to the scene where the KGB guy is just like, you, you fool. Yeah. What did it get you? What does it matter why the bullet is entering your skull, even in that case, metaphorically, right? Like that, that's the larger purpose of this. So yes, I agree with you. I agree with, I mean, we're not arguing, but I, I agree that it does become a different thing and it does become more convenient, but that's mm-hmm. also the nature of filmed narrative entertainments. They, they, there's an arc and the arc that Mason put on an un, unarkable event is remar- is arkable to remarkable. It is. It's remarkable. He he chose very, very well so that the artifice is still serving the larger purpose, in my view. Yes. And I guess I wanted to have a little bit of a conversation. There's, there's a bunch of hit things I wanted to hit, including some non-Harris, Skarsgård, Watson, favorite characters or performances mm-hmm. and things that you loved about the show. But I did want to ask you whether or not you felt like you were watching the show with different eyes in 2023 than you would have in 2019, not just because of like whatever you've changed, however you've changed personally. But I think that it's been well documented that this show came out of 
a Trump era where there was like people were first becoming conversant with the idea of misinformation, which mm-hmm. has now become kind of maybe overused at this point or maybe underused at this point. I don't even know what to say, but now it's kind of like one of those words that you just see and, and you gloss right over it, right? Um, in your frequent haunting of internet news. Just Facebook. Sources. I was trying to I was trying to answer this question for myself, but I was curious whether or not you felt like 2023 Andy watched this show differently than 2019 Andy would. Um, As a big Mueller she wrote guy that you were, you know? <laughs> I, I think it's a great question. And I do wonder, I, I can't answer it. I do think that it's probably telling that we did I mean yes we wanted to we wanted to get up on the Mason verse like there are reasons why we finally listened to people that we otherwise admired and respect that's why we watched it now but I'm not saying that like everything is super chill in Kevin McCarthy's America mm-hmm. but there was a constant feeling of panic in my body and life at the time that this show came out not just cuz it was in production and not just because I was still on Twitter which retrospect also was a mistake um i think that i think that i think it may hit different Mm -hmm. at that time when you are looking to be freaked out and expecting to be freaked out versus maybe it just runs back to the thing i said at the beginning of the pod which was as challenging as this series is i did not find it hard to watch and i wonder if that may have been different i don't know how do you feel about it i don't know i think that i rarely really watch television with an eye towards like what the ideology of the show is or what, you know, if Craig Mason hadn't said this is about like lack of trust in institutions and what happens when we blot out criticism of those institutions, that's it. I, I, the thing that leapt out at me was how that must have changed during COVID, right? Mm. Because it, during COVID, I think for, for the most part, I personally was like longing for trusted institutions. Yes. You know, like I wanted to know, hey, you guys just tell me what I'm supposed to do and uh, and I'll do that, you know? And I think that having, living in a world where those things were so frankly easily questioned and so publicly debated was a little unsettling. Now, obviously, uh, a pandemic is different than a industrial disaster. Yes. Although, you know, at this point, like if Chernobyl happened today, you would have people who were like, that's not really happening. Yeah. Or they want you to think it's this, but like, what about this? And, you know, I mean, I, the the redditization of something like this gives me probably the kind of willies that you get thinking about radiation coursing through your body. You know? I, I, I think that that's, I think that's probably right. I also think that post-COVID, the interesting thing about watching it is just, again, I'm not an expert at this and I don't want to just like rain takes down, but like the what appears to me to be a profound difference in the American character and I don't want to say Soviet or Russian, but the non-American character, uh-huh. which is to say like Americans broadly did kind of believe, including us, I'll just say us, that like, okay, there's a pandemic coming, but we'll be fine. Or like these sure. things will work. There's a backstop. That's kind of how we felt during the Trump years too. Like, oh, well, the rule of law, the sort of gentleman's agreement that we won't do this, that'll be fine. Yeah. The trust in institutions you're talking about. And the to contrast that with the woman milking a cow in episode four mm-hmm. of Chernobyl, who's just like delivers a devastating 
dead-eyed monologue about how everyone in her family was killed, their bones yeah, ground and generation to dust. upon generation of people have come through this village and told me I needed to get and, out, and I'm still here. And my life isn't defined by my possessions or my accomplishments or my achievements. It's merely by surviving here, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't expect you to understand that, and I don't expect anything to get better. I just expect to milk this cow, you know? And that kind of that mixture of like we're being kept in the dark and being kept ignorant but it's not like it's a blissful ignorance sure we don't expect things to be better than this you know and horrific things happen you know th- that aspect of it again our experience over the last two years of having to order takeout more is not comparable no i know but i did think that that was an interesting con- that contrast is all- only became more interesting i think in the years since the show premiered and when we watched it yeah and i think that just living through a time where on a milder, probably obviously larger, but milder level of, you know, don't panic. And then that being like a central sort of tenet of like, mm-hmm. we just want people not to panic. You know, don't worry about the grocery stores. Don't worry about this. Like, we're going to figure this out. Don't panic. Don't panic. And then like the way in which that just doesn't work anymore. You know, telling people to remain calm or not panic. And either is even one of these episodes is like, please remain calm is is the, the quickest way to get in people to freak the fuck out. But also how arbitrary all of it is. Because yeah. you could, there's a moment in the show where they're like 30 miles outside and then everybody's fine. Uh-huh. And Legasov's like, well, why not 29? Or why not 300? Like, we've poisoned the planet irreparably here. Yeah. But the truth is it's always arbitrary. And the desire to have someone tell us, what's is this okay? And then this is the point where it becomes not okay. And that's what we've been living through in terms of like, so should I stop wearing a mask? Should I wear them on airplanes? Like, what what am I right. doing here? And the answer, uncomfortably, should I start has, smoking again? Like, <laughs> I mean, apparently, they certainly did. I mean, to be openly two pack a day yeah. in Russian a reactor yeah. in a reactor core. Yeah, Russian cigarettes are already mostly graphite. <laughs> that's just. It's just well, no, no. Just the filter tips are graphite. The rest is boron. <laughs> yes, that's right. You no, know, but they cheaped out on the tips. It's it, it's wild, wild, wild for all of those cultural reasons. But it is also, and I just keep wanting to keep coming back to this. It is just such like god tier television. The cast. I mean, you want to run down a little bit deeper into the well down the call sheet. So we can do the 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 region of this NCAA tournament. That's people that were also on Andor. <laughs> yep. Or, or in terms of uh, uh, the actor Adrian Rollins and or Chernobyl and the Oscar nominated film Living, which is called a full Greenwald. I believe you coined that term. The Greenwald Triple Crown. Yes. Yeah. Alex Fern, who plays the coal miner in uh, the Tula coal, coal miner in Chernobyl, who's also the pockets are flamenting guy in Andor. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Uh and then, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Paul Ritter, who yep. plays Dialov. And, you know, as you said, big poetry lover, uh, long-term believer in Brock Purdy, didn't didn't believe the Mr. Irrelevant stuff. Um, but to embody this sort of uh, hostile negligence and basically the disregard for human life. It's contemptuous. But to still be utterly watchable and also like, it's not like I, f- you feel for him like you're like, everybody's had a Diatlov day, you know? <laughs> Is that your management style? <laughs> like, Whoa, CR's going full Diatlov over there. <laughs> He's on cigarette number nine. <laughs> got a, somebody's got a case of the Mondays or the Wednesday night 
safety tests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to still be a human being. I thought, and, and this is the thing that maybe I'm just in the bag for if you cast a bunch of English and Scottish and Welsh and Irish actors, I find them inherently believable in a way. Yeah. I think I know why, though. Because they're better? No, because they look like people. Yeah, that's part of it for sure. And I think that largely American cast television and films still put a premium on this person's hot. Yep. Um, that's why we work in an audio medium. No, but I'm serious. I agree with you. You know, I think that it's like important that like the person working at the computer in S.H.I.E.L.D. in a, in a Marvel movie is attractive. Mm-hmm. And it's not important in Chernobyl. No. No. And... <laughs> I know that sounds like faint praise to be like, congrats, Chernobyl cast. You guys are fucking ugly. <laughs> you got a, an international compliment of uggos <laughs> bringing America, the world's worst tragedy to life. I mean, if they hired us to do the marketing for this show, this Sunday night... <laughs> Won't be any viral skincare coming out of this one. No, yeah. like, what are the branding opportunities yeah. here? Um, yes, but also... Like, there's something that is so rich about it that is universal, which is that people exist as people within the um, the systems that they are placed in. Yeah. So when you have those scenes, like the absolutely breathtaking scene, like that's in the basement in the first episode, when all the party yeah. bigwigs get together to be like, well, what are we going to do? And the conversation isn't how are we going to put out the fire, literally and otherwise. It's not how we're going to save people. It's how are we going to choose a story and lock it the fuck down. Well, it's not even that. And it's like, if these guys can't tell each other the truth, how are they going to tell the it, truth it, to the rest of the exactly. people? Exactly. And they are all agreed. They're doing this. And, and what's interesting about it is that with Legasov breaking that, it's not just a choice. It's a violation mm-hmm. because he's breaking the rules. It's like saying no in an improv game. Like you just, right. no, we, we've all agreed on the terms here and it's worked out fine. Right. And we were afraid of the alternative. And so here we go. And so that incredible moment when, um, uh, who is it? Is it uh, Alan? No, I forget. You're talking about my, my guy Charkov, the yeah. KGB guy? Charkov is incredible. That's Alan Williams. Yeah. Not Charkov, but there's the guy who was one of the early maesters in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Super weird for me to be like, my guy, Charkov? <laughs> That's your number one. Um, no, the guy from Game of Thrones, he's a maester. Uh, um, anyway, in that scene, um, you know, he, he's, they look to him mm-hmm. and he's just like, we lock this down. Because that's what we do as, you know, as loyal Soviet citizens. And he like stamps his cane and everyone's like, applauds. Yeah. Everyone's looking for someone to applaud, you know, which is fascinating. And there's actually moments like that in White Noise too, which is about another event, which yeah. a, a scene that doesn't age so well in comparison to Chernobyl, but just because of the tone in which it is portrayed. But when you're talking about performances, I mentioned Adrian Rollins, who's, who's Foman, who's one of the chief engineers who's dodging, you know, blame. And, and has also done the Andor. And living. But living, the, yeah. my guy is Con O'Neill, who's the other guy who we've seen in a hundred different Akimov British things. He, Con O'Neill is uh, um, Birkinov. He gets woken up in the beginning and he has that very unique sort of raspy voice. And there's a there's a gif that many people in our Facebook group like to use of him pounding the table in oh, support. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, and he's he's the third guy on trial. And he's just, it's just so brilliant. Oh, that's the guy who's like, I'm going to get promoted. So you, yes. he's, I got to promote somebody into my spot. Yeah, and, and that guy's like, I'll, I would like to be considered. And he's like, fucking the dance for me here. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what it is all about is just, that sort of petty, pet, the pettiness, the hunger, you know, and and 
that's the root of it. Which brings us back to the thing we said at the beginning, which is the way that you tell the story matters, the way you dole it out, the way you bring, you're brought into it. And the choice to bring us in in media res is brilliant for dramatic purposes. Mm-hmm. You're completely thrown. You're off. You don't know where you are, what's going on, but you know it's bad because you know the name of the fucking show. I didn't, I was so dazzled by everything that I honestly didn't expect to run the clock back in the finale. So we could, we could focus on the trial, but the fact that it takes us back to that day and you see the kids in the May Day uniforms, Masha Gessen didn't like that, but you see life. Mm-hmm. You see the guy who brings his baby to what is now called the Bridge of Death to watch the explosion right. with his baby. You see Vasily, you know, holding a baby because he'd like to have one and all of these scenes of life. But what you also see is just three craven dudes. Just three craven dudes that, that were it's just business as usual. That's the thing. And, and what I think is so triumphant about the way the series ends isn't whether it was accurate or, or, not, or not accurate. I, it didn't say at the end that those three guys were guilty. It didn't toe the Soviet party yeah. line. I thought the show did a brilliant job of indicting an entire system while also, and this is what Legasov's point was, saying that this 25-year-old, you know, in the thrall of a, a, you know, a, yeah, a, a promotion-sniffing asshole. Like living on the line, being like, if I don't do my job tonight, like I get exiled or whatever. Like that—that's pretty amazing. Do you ever have the thing where you're like, yeah? I mean, this is always the case with these international productions. But I'm like, God, I recognize that guy. That guy who's playing Gorbachev. Well, first of all, that's that's not his real head or birthmark. I know that you're trying to place him, and you've seen him and stuff. And what then you, you realize that's not his real head. Well, because he's wearing like a like a. It's his real head, but like <laughs> his real scalp. Like uh-huh. he's wearing a headpiece because he's the creepy guy from Top of the Lake. I think he's. Isn't he also in Ticker Taylor? The Yes. Thomas Alfredson. David. Oh my God, I said Thomas Alfredson. Like he's like from Fishtown. The, the Tommy, the Tommy Alfredson version. <laughs> yeah. Just, just amazing. Just another, just great actors. Hey, speaking of filmmaking. Yeah. Speaking of Tommy Alfredson award for best filmmaking on Chernobyl. Uh, the direction and cinematography of this is astounding. It is. Yeah. Like every shot drips with that kind of internal authenticity that I was talking about. Johan Rank, I and mean, we talked about this once before, you know, y- you and I remember him as Stack of Bow from the early 90s and his uh, one-hit wonder, Here We Go. I don't remember that. That was a big song. That was a big song. Like, he was like, remember Lucas with the lid off? Oh, yeah. He looks like... He wasn't that, like, but he was like Clive that. Owen's fucked up nephew. He was, a, he's a Swedish pop star. Yeah. And had the song. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's bizarre to look at this guy's CV and be like, oh, he's a God-level genius? Because there's, it's not like he ever did anything bad, but like he directed an episode of Halt and Catch Fire. This he, guy directed did, The Last Panthers. He did Bloodline, did you see and that? then he did Last Panthers. God yeah. damn. And he it, said he turned down directing Better Call Saul and Game of Thrones I mean, in Homeland. I mean, because he only wanted... He, so did I. Yeah. I mean, uh, you can't prove otherwise. But no, he's legit incredible. Because when the filmmaking... we It's similar praise to, I think, that we gave to... Um, Ronaldo Marcus Green, uh-huh. right? Where it's like, it is such a unique thing in this era to see auteur-level direction in a, like, serialized narrative story that both advances the story, it doesn't get in the way, it doesn't make a show of itself, but is just services so beautifully. Yeah. It's really a stunning achievement. And, yeah, I mean, I, his reward is doing the the Dune show, you know, which... Honestly, following in Denis Villeneuve's footsteps isn't so bad. There's two choices that they, the creative team here makes 
that I think really speaks to the uh, maybe somewhat muddled idea I'm trying to get across of like, if you create the reality of your show, it doesn't matter what the reality outside the show is. Yeah. Um, one is this choice to have an ensemble of British actors, yes. right? Which I think makes a logical sense because you start, for me, I was watching and the reason why you never blink, even when Emily Watson somewhat slips into like minor Ukrainian, you know? Did, did you think? Yeah. I think she has like some accent stuff going on, but I started thinking of like the coal mining industry of England. And it was very easy for me to transpose yes. the sort of reality of like English life to the realities of Russian life. So there's that. But, but yeah, but I, that's a great point. It's a choice. Yeah. It's a choice to not have them do Russian accented English. Yes. And it was also, I have to be honest, it did throw me because we are in this era of like verisimilitude and in international productions where they're English actors speaking English unaccented where when all of the typography around them is in Cyrillic. Cyrillic yeah. But and all the names are like Legasov, you know, like they're Yeah, or they say comrade, yeah. they say things that maybe sound a little better in the original Klingon, if you know what I mean. Sure. But it's a very smart choice for the reason you exactly said, which is that immediately that barrier of like and we we have to admit this this happens. As soon as someone's speaking another language, a, a small barrier is put between us and them. Mm-hmm. In the same way, if someone is wearing, I just said the word, I'll say it again, a Klingon mask or something. Like, there's just a little bit of distance. Yeah. This immediately, there is no denying. We understand them. We are them. And that was a huge choice that was a successful one. And then the decision that that Rank and, and Mazin made to take something that's set in the mid-80s, mm-hmm. but shoot it like it's a conspiracy thriller from the 70s. And so you make something that if you were going to use the cinematic language of the time period of when it was set, would not look like this. Yeah. You know, it would look cleaner. It would probably look sharper. Uh, and certainly now, with the sort of digital camera kind of flattening that's happened, it wouldn't look like that. So they make this choice. I'm sure they shot it on digital or whatever, but to make it feel like you were watching film stock and that it has that tone of all the President's Men and Parallax View and Marathon Man and these kinds of Three Days of the Condor kind of... Men with bad ties smoking in, in rooms. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's just such a brilliant choice. And that's ultimately what shows are evaluated on is the choices that they make. We had that conversation with Sam where he's like, well, you you can only evaluate the choices it does make, not yeah. the choices it didn't make. But I think crucially, like this, this is one of those shows that I think almost proves Sam's point where it's like, it's the choices that they did make so yes. that it doesn't matter that they didn't decide to do certain things. Well, let's also just stay on that point of decision-making. Because I think, I want to be careful how I say this, because I generally am a fan of the opposite of what I'm about to talk about. Okay. And I think the opposite of what I'm about to talk about defines contemporary TV. And what I mean is a certain welcoming the chaos, seat of your pants, improvisational, uh, bucket will do it in post attitude. Yes. That is inherent to TV for a number of reasons. One of which is that's always been TV. It's not movies. It, ha- it has to air at 8 p.m. on Saturdays or in the old days. So you just do your best and you move on. There's another one coming. It's also the nature of expanding ambition and not necessarily similarly expanding production schedules or even budgets, mm-hmm. despite what we've seen and her- reported on. We haven't reported. But we've, we've talked about reporting into microphones sometimes where you just, you know, everybody's doing their best to keep up and just hide things and keep the ball moving. 
And then also the nature of writer's rooms, where you could walk in with a vision of what your show is going to be. And it's not just that the cast might surprise you or that you might lose a location. It's that you're with six to eight other people who are interesting and have their own ideas and perspectives. And they might say something that blows up your story mm-hmm. in a good way. And for me, that's like, and, and I'm only going to say his name because he's, a, he's, he's our, become our friend and he, I know he's listening to this and he wanted us to watch Chernobyl. But like that chaos energy, I think, is what makes our friend Damon Lindelof's show Watchmen great. That chaos energy is what makes another friend of ours, Patrick Somerville's Station Eleven, great. And I think they would say this. I'm sure knowing those two, they'll hear this as slightly as an insult, and I don't mean it as one. I mean that there are things in that series that we sat down and did a podcast about and said, this is magnificent, this is exhilarating, this is transformative. And they would be like, that was an accident. Mm -hmm. That almost didn't happen. Someone came in on the last day and suggested it, and oh my God, it swung everything. I love that energy. That's not Chernobyl. Chernobyl, maybe it's more like Andor in this regard, Chernobyl feels absolutely meticulously considered, fully formed, designed, fully realized, plotted, and executed. Not just because it seems like Craig Mazin and Luke Hall had a relationship like Tony had with Luke Hall, where it feels like the production design was step in lockstep with the writing. It's just that the just that confidence of having the beginning be the end and not feel corny about it. Mm-hmm. It it's it's really a wild feeling and a rare one and a different one to end the first episode of a series like this and be like, yeah, we're in the, hand, we're in the hands of masters here. Yeah. Everything about this, they, they nailed it. Now, I'm sure on his podcast with Peter Sagal, Craig Mason was like, oh my God, we were flying by the seat of our pants. Yeah, we were in Lithuania, fucking Lithuania. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's always the case. But I think, do you know what I mean by that distinction? It's like TV energy to me is different than this. And this was a really compelling contrast. Never in any way saying it's fundamentally better because some of my favorite things have come from that kind of happy accident. But like, it was, it's pretty cool. It was really, really, really powerful. We can wrap it up there. I think it goes without saying, but I'll say it. Just, I think Jared Harris and Skarsgård as the sin eaters of this show, but also the leads and two guys who I think have done a lot of character work and rarely gotten to be almost every page of a show mm-hmm. or beautiful beautiful performances um and also the the sort of arc of their relationship while i guess traditional in the sense of like and then they learned to understand each other was like still magical you know to watch these two guys profoundly changed by their uh shared death warrant essentially is really remarkable to watch there's two kinds of exceptional casting i think that that deserves notice, but one gets more notice. The one that gets more notice is the, oh, you saw something in this actor that we haven't been able to see before, and look what they did. Um, The other version is, I'm going to cast people who are perfect for this. Not to say that they're, you know, phoning it in or typecast, but like, Jared Harris has such a unique combination of being like a, a classically trained English actor. His father was a big, you know, famous actor and star as well. But he's also, his energy is so different. He is not an alpha in the lead, you know? That's the whole point of this character, too. Yes, he was not supposed to be the main character, you know? And so you cast someone who often isn't meant to be the main character, and you you see the way he physically reacts to that glare, let alone the boron or xenon poison. It's also like, I don't think you can do what Charkov does to Legasov at the end of the show, which is like, the thing I'm going to do to you is worse than death. Mm-hmm. I'm going to erase you. you don't and you're going to live to see it. Yeah. I don't think you can do that to like Tom Hardy. You know, you yeah. have to have a guy who looks like he's taken blows in life. Yeah. Also, 
Tom Hardy would have insisted that Lagasov wear a mask the whole time, so he wouldn't have died. Like, just to be classic Tom Hardy guy, he would have had like the most elaborate anti-nuclear mask. I was mask. born in Chernobyl. Yeah, Chris, gun to your head. Sorry, to our KGB friends. Would this show have been better with Bane? <laughs> if, if he's like, I was born in this these pools. Like, you get called in to a Spotify meeting by Daniel Ek and a party guy you've never seen before, right? Uh-huh. And he's just like, Sweden, Look, Sweden's not. Communist, but go ahead. No, I, no, no. I, I'm not. It's not a one to one. Yeah, but I'm just saying that he's just like. There's been a, a small podcasting accident, and I need some brave uh, talent uh-huh. to go into the affected water studio, yeah. studio, and uh, fix it. Okay, and uh, you know what that means. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you're in that in that scene when he, they're like, "Who's gonna go?" Head for who's gonna go dumpster diving in <laughs> nuke water, you know? And then, like, when someone volunteers, do you think everyone, like, do you think there's someone in that room who's just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move my arm, but I'm gonna do it real slow? You, so like, I'm not bad. Yeah, I would do that. Like, do you think, like, that's a wild thing. Yeah. But I just think that once you, once you're in that zone, you're probably just like, the clock's ticking, man. It's time to put up some highlight tape. You mean the, the irradiated zone? Yeah. Oh, oh! You mean like let's let's be heroes, let's be legends, let's uh, burn out, not fade away. Yeah. How would the four members of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young have fared? Are we done podcasting now? When we start throwing out hypotheticals, like which one is the hero? Uh God, Andy. Well, Skarsgård we could play Nash. Oh yeah. Later in life. Yeah. Um, Alex Ferns could play Crosby. Yeah, that's true. R.I.P. Thanks to Kaya for hanging with us on a very long, uh, strange trip, three and a half years Ka- in the making. Kaya, are you going to watch Chernobyl now? I watched Chernobyl like three years ago. God damn it. <laughs> and yet, did you think it was weird three years ago that we didn't talk about it? No, you guys were busy. Yeah, That's so nice. That's nice of you. I can't believe you just sat here for three and a half years <laughs> with us not watching it. You're very, very kind. We will be back on Monday to mm-hmm. talk about The Last of Us, another show that Craig Mazin is currently overseeing. And we'll also talk about Poker Face. Uh, some exciting stuff coming up down the pike. Obviously, a super busy March. So get all your, your Z's in in February, Grimwald. Remember earlier in this podcast when you were like, go on record with your Fable mistake. And then at the end, you're like, I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> that was unbelievable. Let's just, let's just remember that. Uh, thanks for listening to The Watch. I'm going to go intellectually weep. 